0: You're listening to TIP.
1: On today's show, I talk with house hacking expert, Craig Curlop. Craig works at BiggerPockets, is an author of a new book called The House Hacking Strategy, and is a successful real estate investor. He is passionate about helping millennials achieve their goals and financial freedom using real estate.
0: You're listening to Real Estate Investing by The Investor's Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Craig Curlop from Bigger Pockets. Welcome to the show, Craig.
0: Hey Robert, thanks for having me on.
1: Let's start the show by talking about your background and your story. How'd you get to where you are and become a successful real estate investor at such a young age?
0: Uh yeah. So it actually really all started when I got out of college. Uh, I went to my quote-unquote dream job out in California, where I worked for a like a venture debt company. So we basically gave hard money loans to startup companies. And the first six months were fine, but then I realized that I was just like working my butt off you know week after week like you know 60 70 80 hour weeks just to make my boss 10 times more money than me and my kid's boss 10 times more money than him so I realized like, that wasn't a lifestyle for me and I'd rather put my hard work towards something else and then you know I discovered you know financial independence and all that kind of stuff started thinking of like startups and all that that didn't really pan out and then I just said you know what like why reinvent the wheel real estate has worked for millions of people over the years why not just invest in real estate so that's kind of the route I took I found bigger pockets Ended up getting a job at Bigger Pockets, and you know, here I am now, house hacking a whole bunch and investing in real estate.
1: When you were getting started in real estate, were you up against like a stigma that real estate was really only for the rich, and you couldn't necessarily do it unless you had a lot of money, or did you know already of strategies that you could jump right into?
0: I had no idea. I just know that, like at the time, one of my actually interns at my last job, he told me that his dad had bought like a nine-unit building when he was like 25, and he had just paid it off. You know, he's like 45 or 50 now. And like, it's just a huge cash cow for him. And I was like, oh, interesting. Like, if he could do that at 25, and I was like 23 at the time, I was thinking, like, why, why the heck can I do that? And so I started to look into it more. I read uh, Brandon Turner's book, The Book on Rental Properties. I think that kind of opened my world. And I was like, oh, I'm like, look, like anyone can do this. You just need like, you know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars 15000 and you got it. So.
1: Uh, yeah, that's pretty much what I experienced as well. When I first got into real estate, I thought it was going to be something that you had to be super wealthy to get involved in. And then like you said, really not. That stigma is kind of old compared to what's available these days.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, there's so many loan products and stuff out there for you to just do low money down that
1: you know it's super
0: powerful, especially if you're mobile and don't mind living in different places each year.
1: Let's talk about house hacking. What exactly is that strategy?
0: Yeah. So house hacking is the idea that you buy a one to four unit property with Typically a three to five percent down loan, because you're putting such a low amount down, you're required to live there for one year, and then while you're living there, you rent out the other rooms or the other units, and uh, rent from those other rooms or units covers your mortgage. So you are now living for free. You're building equity in a house, and all of these things, all of these wealth generators of real estate are working for you, such that you're building tremendous amounts of wealth over time, and you know because you're saving so much, you're able to buy the next one in one year, and buy the next one after that, and a year after that and you just start growing this massive portfolio that's building you tons of wealth over time and it's hard not to get rich that way
1: is it a scalable strategy can it be repeated multiple times
0: yeah i mean i'm on i'm on my third one right now um, and i haven't had really any problem with it you know you'll get to a point which i'm kind of at right now where i now want to buy more than one a year and you can't buy more than one house hack a year but you know you do two or three of them and you've got experience being a landlord you're kind of ready take that next step into maybe doing some sort of like burr investing or just traditional buy and hold or maybe flipping, something like that. But it kind of primes you for true real estate investing.
1: So there's no loan covenants or anything like that that restricts you from doing more than one of these or having more than one owner-occupied loan at a time?
0: Nope. You just have to live there for one year and then you can go ahead and get another owner occupied loan. That's the only stipulation.
1: So who is this strategy perfect for and who might it not work so well for?
0: So, I think there's a form of the strategy that works for everybody. So, I talk about this in the book as well, where like, basically it's like the comfort continuum and you're going to sacrifice comfortability and profitability. I would say it is 100% best for someone like our age, you know, in their mid to late 20s or even early 20s. They're going to buy a single family house, you know, rent out the rooms. They're covering the mortgage. They're basically just living like they did in college, right? You know, if you have a family, that's a little bit less feasible. So then you kind of go up that continuum with maybe you buy a duplex, triplex, or quad. You and your family have their own unit, but you share, you know, you just share the overall building with other tenants. If that still doesn't seem like what you want to do, you can always buy your dream house, but you know, just buy a house that has a mother in law suite in the basement or maybe like a casita in the backyard and you rent that out on Airbnb or long term such that the rent from that maybe doesn't totally offset your mortgage, but at least helps maybe a thousand dollars or so a month. So. I think any of these strategies work, we just have to figure out what works best for you.
1: What are the most important things that people need to look for when they're actually trying to find a house hack deal?
0: Depends on what deal you're looking for. So if you're looking to do the the house, like the single family house, I'd recommend you really want the most bedrooms and bathrooms for your dollar. And so I always like to look for things that are like four beds, two baths with 2,000 square feet or more. And if there's more than 2,000 square feet, there's likely enough room to add a fifth bedroom. So I'd like to try to have at least five or six bedrooms with at least three bathrooms. And that is usually a pretty good ratio for everybody.
1: How about in a multi unit property?
0: Then you know, just have to make sure it's in a good location. You know, maybe you've got like usually it's a couple two bedrooms, two bed, one baths. Those are kind of perfect. Those are very easy to rent out. And then, you know, if you want to do the luxurious house hack where, you know, you've got that mother in law suite, you just gotta make sure that, hey, can you easily make it such that the uh, the basement unit or the dwelling unit? Can be accessed without like accessing through your house, um, and those are kind of the things that I look for.
1: How important is it for a new investor or somebody that's looking to house hack? How important is it for them to consider the numbers of the investment property when they move out? Right, because if you don't think about that, could you buy a house hack that's really good as a house hack when you're living there? But when you move out and you move on to your next deal and it's an actual investment property, maybe it isn't so great.
0: So usually it tends to work better when you move out, right? Because You're occupying a room and you're living for free in that room. So when you move out, you can then rent your room that you were living in. And now that place is totally cash flowing, you know, the five or 600 bucks more that you were occupying. Now, if you do not want to do the rent by the room, if you're doing the rent by the room strategy, right, this is kind of the only time where it's a little bit different, where it's like, that's like the biggest difference, right? If you have your own unit, it's easy to rent out, no problem. But if you're doing that single family rent by the room strategy, you kind of have to figure out, okay, do you want to manage this by the room? If yes, then great. If not, can someone else do it for you? If you can't find anyone else to do it for you, then you have to rent it out as like a full unit and you probably won't get as much money for that full unit, but you just kind of have to like, you know, work the numbers out. I would recommend making sure your numbers work both as a rent by the room rental and as well as if you're to rent it out as a full unit with you not living there.
1: Do you generally leave it as a rent by the room when you move out or do you traditionally move it to a traditional rental?
0: I always leave it rent by the room. Um, I found a property manager actually that does rent by the room, so I don't really deal with all the crap. I just you know pay her a couple hundred bucks a month to to handle it.
1: And so when you move out, tenants aren't worried about somebody else coming in. They're okay with that agreement.
0: Yeah, well the woman is a property manager, right? So she this is her job. And I always just say like, hey, this woman is way more professional than me. She does her job way better than me. Like she's way like she is a property manager. So she's got herself together way more than I would. And she's probably way nicer than me as well. So I just kind of lay that out in front of them and they kind of were like, okay, like they're getting a better deal out of it. You know, it's probably better that they don't see that, like most people don't want to live with their landlord. They don't want the landlord to be overshadowing, right? So I haven't had any problems with that.
1: It's really interesting to hear you say that because I thought that when people house hacked and they eventually moved out, I was thinking that most people would convert it to a traditional rental and, and not necessarily kick those people out, but align the expiration of their lease with when they plan on leaving and then just filling it with a normal normal lease for the whole property rather than just buy the room. Yeah.
0: I think most people do that, right? I just figured like, hey, why not just try it this way? I mean, I've already got all the common areas furnished. So if I had to do that, I'd have to take out all the I have to take all the furniture. It's such a, it's way more of a pain than just to take my stuff out of my room and just have someone come in and go my spot.
1: Yeah, I guess it's a little different too, right? You're looking at five, six-bedroom houses with two, three bathrooms. That's much larger than I think probably a lot of people are looking for I, originally. They're probably looking at more like two, three, maybe four-bedroom properties, which I guess is probably easier to rent to a family through a traditional lease than maybe a five or six-bedroom house.
0: Yeah. And I think like it all depends on your strategy. I never understood why people think that families don't like five-bedrooms. I just feel like if you've got... Like a family of four, right? You're like your parents get a room, each kid gets a room, there's an office, and then there's a guest bedroom.
1: No, it really isn't. But I guess for me around here, northern Boston area, I don't seem to see a lot of five or six bedroom houses. I mean it seems it seems like that would be a really big house.
0: I grew up in a five bedroom house. But I was in middle of nowhere, Massachusetts. So yeah, I guess it's just different depending on where you are.
1: So in a real estate market like we're experiencing right now, where prices are generally pretty high. Or just inexpensive markets in general—is this strategy possible?
0: Yeah. So when when prices are high, it definitely becomes a little bit more interesting, right? You have to get a little bit creative, right? And it comes to a point where you can't really find deals; you have to make deals. And what I mean by that is like you have to see things that other people don't see, right? So maybe getting a three bed, two bath, and converting it to a five bed, three bath. I think that is like how to make probably the most money in this situation because you'll add a lot of equity to the property as well, if you get a whole bunch of cash flow. And, and that's a strategy. You know, I've got a friend who lived in San Francisco who did this. He rented a like six or seven bedroom house in San Francisco for like $6,000 a month, like an absurd price. But San Francisco is a very desirable place to live. And a lot of entrepreneurs wanna live there and they wanna live there with other entrepreneurs. He satisfied that need by basically having like an entrepreneur co-living space where he put a bunch of bunk beds in the rooms, like two bunk beds per room and charged $1,200 a bed. He was bringing in 18 grand, paying his landlord six, using three grand for like improvements and all that kind of stuff each month. He was netting nine grand. I mean, that's house hacking and that's like absurd numbers. So, you know, he's making 9,000 times 12 months is $84,000 a year. That's a salary that he's making just on his housing and he's living for free. Right. So it's just like crazy when you, when you think about it.
1: Yeah. Not only is he getting rid of, most people's largest expense. But like you said, I mean, he's making a salary off that. That's, that's incredible.
0: Yeah. That's an extreme scenario, but kind of like the only ones that I've heard of that actually truly work in those big cities, like San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles, Boston is probably one of those two. You know, you get to the outskirts of Boston, you might make, be able to make it work a little more, but...
1: I mean, you're in the Denver market and you're, like you said, you're consistently doing this. You're on your third one and Denver is not a super cheap City. I mean, it's not super expensive like some others like San Francisco, but I mean, it's not cheap.
0: Yeah. The good thing about Denver is that the outskirts of Denver isn't that expensive quite yet. You know, you go outside of San Francisco into like, you know, you go down the peninsula into like San Mateo, Palo Alto, or even on the East Bay, like Oakland, it's, it's still very expensive there. Like, you have to go like two hours to the inexpensive houses. Denver, you go 10 minutes on the highway and you're into houses that are 300, 400,000, very affordable and work very well with the strategy.
1: So what are some of the hidden or just often overlooked parts of a house hack that somebody listening to the show should really be aware of when they're starting their first house hack?
0: I think it's really, really important to just... For most people, a house hack will be their first investment. And it is very scary putting that amount of money down on anything. But I would recommend just you have to go do it because it doesn't really matter about getting the best deal. It doesn't matter about getting 20 grand off the purchase price. It matters that you get in and get in early and fast. So you can start saving on rent, start building that equity in the property, start paying down the loan. And most importantly, that that ticker starts, right? That one year timer starts until you can get your next one, right? If you're waiting six months for the perfect deal, sure, you may save 10 or 15 grand, but you're going to make up that 10 and 15 grand through loan pay down, through cash flow, through rent savings, and through appreciation in those months. Like there's a huge opportunity cost with waiting for a house hack. And that doesn't even include the fact that you can't get another house hack until a year and six months later instead of just a year later. So that's like the biggest thing that people don't quite understand. And that I try to really pound into people's heads is just like, just go do a deal.
1: And do you think it's often overlooked about how professional people need to handle it? So if if you're living in the property with other people, if it's a single unit, so just a single family house, it's probably more common than a duplex or three or four units. But Do you think it's common for people to not necessarily have like a legal lease and do all the legal paperwork that's needed?
0: I would say there are definitely people that do it. I hope that no one in the bigger pockets community or in your community does it. Uh, It's just like, it's an unnecessary risk, you know, like always just like CYA and, you know, get yourself a good lease. We have them on bigger pockets. Yeah, like just do it all the right way. Don't take any shortcuts because it will come back to bite you at some point.
1: So, treat it as if it is truly a regular investment property. Cross all your T's, dot all your I's.
0: Yeah, treat it like a business, man. You got to treat it like a business. You know, I even, I background check and credit check my friends. Like everyone goes through the same exact process. I don't care who you are. And if you don't like it, then don't live with me. And I I did not do this one time, right? I did not do a background check or credit check one time and it came back to bite me. So, I just, every time just got to do it.
1: How did that one come back to bite you?
0: So on my most recent property, you know, I was on my third one, getting kind of cocky, getting kind of lazy and too confident, and um, there were people that were looking at my top. So basically, the my third house hack is it's a six bed three bath, it's a three bed two bath on top, three bed one bath on the bottom, and I had people coming to look at the top, but it had already been filled, and so they were coming anyway. So I just said whatever, I'll show them the basement, and I showed them the basement, and it was going to be month to month because I was redoing the whole basement besides the bedrooms. So they could live there, but they would basically be living in a construction zone. And I knew it was gonna be just month to month. So I was like, yeah, whatever. I don't need to do a background check, credit check, because again, like, what's the worst that could happen? Well, I found out the the first day I got the contractors in there, the contractors went down the hallway to work with some carpet, and they smelled like this atrocious smell coming from the rooms, and they didn't know what it was. And so I went and I looked up the woman's name who I accepted on Google, which you should do this before you let them in your house. And she was on our county's most wanted list for like hard drugs. So the woman was doing meth or crack or something in my basement you know, during the day while I wasn't there and the contractors were there. And so I immediately, like, I was fortunate in that I just basically did cash for keys and said, hey, I'll give you your rent, your security deposit, and $500 to just get out. And they left no problem by the end of the week. But that could have been way, way worse, right? Because it would have been you know, almost two months because I have to give month to month, and then I have to give at least 30 days notice. So the one time I didn't screen properly, it came back to bite me, which was a good lesson and I know now that just don't take any shortcuts, even if it's month to month.
1: Yeah, that's a very good lesson. And it's an unfortunate story, but you got out of it pretty safe. And hopefully the people listening can learn from that and make sure they treat them their property as a business, not just take people's word for it.
0: Yes. Learn from my mistakes.
1: Smart people learn from their own mistakes, but wise people learn from others' mistakes. So That's right. Learn, learn from Craig's mistakes here. Now, in the case of someone who buys a property with more than one unit, so not a single family, but a duplex, triplex, or fourplex, should they use a property manager for the units they're not living in?
0: I would say at first, no, just because you want to understand how to manage the property. That way, when you have a property manager, you know how to manage that property manager and make sure that he or she is doing it right. Yeah. And and it's not like a huge burden on you because it's not like you're going out of your way to manage that property. You're literally just going home. Is where you would go anyway. I'd say if you move out of that property and onto your second one, then you kind of get into the the waters of okay, like maybe maybe it does make sense to, to have a property manager.
1: Yeah, at that point it's really up up to the owner, but is there ever any issues with the landlord living in the property? I mean, you're doing your screening, so essentially you should have good tenants living there, but is there ever any concern or any issues with the landlord living in the property?
0: I have not had any issue. I kind of just like treat people as roommates most of the time. And the only time I'm really a landlord, I play that landlord role is when I first, when they first move in and they're like signing leases, doing move in, move outs, and all that kind of stuff. And if things go wrong, and things don't go wrong that often if you screen properly. So in most cases, I am just like a roommate and they kind of like, you know, we go out, we hang out, like I act no different. I think they appreciate that.
1: What do you think holds people back from doing the strategy? Why do you think more people aren't doing it?
0: I think it's a little bit more work and a little bit more responsibility, and, uh, and people are afraid of that. People are also afraid of putting down 15, 20,000 dollars, or whatever it is, depending on your market, on a house. And yeah, I think, I think it really boils down to just it being too much work and responsibility, and they don't want to handle it, and they don't want to go through the process of learning and all that kind of stuff. So
1: Yeah, I think it's also the comfortability scale that you mentioned before. I think some people just want that comfort of having their own home.
0: Yeah, totally. I think it's kind of a status play too, right? Like people are gonna people are gonna think that you're poor because you're living with people or you know, you kind of have to like stop caring about what other people think and just know that like you're on the right path and you don't need like other people aren't aren't seeing your bank account. So as long as like you know that you're building wealth and becoming rich, like who who cares if you ride a beat up car and live in a crappy apartment if your bank account is ten times the amount of someone else's, right? Like you have way more freedom that way.
1: Yeah, and two, three years down the line. You'll have the last laugh
0: Oh, for sure. like people say it's too much work and too much responsibility. It's like, well, I think working for 40 years is too much work and too much responsibility. so I'd rather like have a little bit of extra work and responsibility for five or so years now and then take the next 40 years and
1: yeah, when you think of it that way, it's really not not a huge deal to take a few hours, read your book, read some of things on bigger pockets, get up to date with the the strategy, and then go implement it when you can cut. 35 years off of your working career.
0: And that allows you to, like, you know, do literally whatever you want to do. Like, some people like to travel. Some people want to spend time with their family. Some people want to start a business. But once you hit that point of financial independence, that's when you can really start to get like really, really wealthy because you can start taking risks that people who aren't financially independent can't take, right? Like, once you're financially independent, you then are playing to win rather than playing not to lose, right? Like, most people in a W 2 job are playing not to lose because if they lose their job, then what, right? So you have to kind of play to win.
1: So when you say financial independence, what do you mean by that?
0: Yeah. So financial independence is the idea that your passive income outside of your W-2 satisfies all of your expenses. So you know if you have two or three property, if you have, say you spend $2,000 a month and you've got three properties at each cash flow you $1,000 a month, you're making $3,000 a month and you're only spending $2,000 a month. You no longer have to work. You're financially independent.
1: What is the best book for a real estate investor to read.
0: I think if you if you're just getting started, I think Brandon and Josh just came out with a book called uh, like How to Invest in Real Estate. I think that's a great starting point. If you're kind of like one step after that, I would recommend Brandon Turner's book on the book on rental property investing. Um, I hate to just plug bigger pockets books, but like I just think those books are very educational, very entertaining, and very easy to read. So it's just like anyone can pick them up and read them and they're very easy
1: and I mean when you search real estate books or anything like that on Amazon or even Google it's pretty much flooded with with bigger pockets books so you'd be hard pressed to not find them anyway. Do you think house hacking is the best strategy for somebody getting started?
0: 100%. The returns you get house hacking, right, are so large like you're putting such a small amount down and almost every scenario that I've ever witnessed, you're getting at least 100% of your net worth back, right? So if you factor in your cash flow your rent savings, your appreciation, your loan paydown, and your tax benefits, which is a whole new, a whole other topic. Like, it's almost impossible not to make your entire lump sum of money back in one year. What other investment gives you a hundred percent return, like consistently, without like all of the risk as like putting it all into an angel fund or a startup? So I just like don't see it. And then, not only is it like a super powerful way to build wealth, but you're also getting that landlord experience and you're being a landlord, and you're it's not out of your way, like your lifestyle won't change all that much, especially if you're already living with roommates.
1: Without going into tax too much, what are some of the tax benefits that you can get from a house hack?
0: So the biggest one is this little thing called depreciation, right? And so what the IRS basically says is that your house will devalue over time. So they take the purchase price of the house and they divide it by 27 and a half years. And that is the amount of depreciation you'll take in a given year. So if you buy a property that's $275,000 divided by 27 and a half years, you know, it's $10,000 a year. And that's a loss to you on your tax forms, but you're not actually spending $10,000, right? You're just taking that loss. So any rental income that you receive, you can subtract all your expenses. Like I subtract my toilet paper and all the stuff that I buy for the house. I subtract all that. I subtract the depreciation. I usually end up with a net loss of say like ten or fifteen thousand dollars, and you're then allowed to take that fifteen thousand dollar loss and apply it to your W two income. So if I make say hundred thousand dollars a year, that W that fifteen thousand dollar loss will then make it look like I've only made eighty five thousand dollars a year, which could put me in a different bracket and I'll be taxed on less. So that's like one of the many ways real estate helps you.
1: And so you're able to do that on a house hack, even though it's an owner occupied property?
0: Yep. The only caveat with a house hack is that you can only depreciate the space you do not occupy. So, for example, like if I had a 2000 square foot house, I lived in a room that was 100 square feet. I could depreciate 1900 of 2000 or 95% of the purchase price of the house for that first year. And then the second year when I move out, I can depreciate the whole thing.
1: That's really interesting. I've done. Two house acts myself and I wasn't super familiar with that when I did it. So I, I didn't take huge advantage of that. And I wasn't in the property very long. But for me, yeah, that's a really interesting component of it. Working at bigger pockets and just being around successful real estate investors, I'm sure you've heard some really good advice. So what has been the best piece of real estate advice that you've ever received?
0: This is the first one that comes to mind, and I'm not sure it's the best, but you know, obviously always screen your tenants and make sure you always do a credit check and make sure their credit check is like above your threshold because anytime that i have seen or that anyone i know has had a bad tenant their credit score has been poor right anyone who cares about paying rent who cares about your property will also care about their credit score and will have likely have a high credit score and pay off their debts there's one caveat is that like if the person is super young and they just don't have enough history like if they're 22 or 21 don't have enough history then that's fine. I'll let that exception go, but then I'll usually just require a co-signer. So definitely, like if there's one metric you're going to pull on tenants' credit score.
1: What do you think is the biggest misconception around house hacking that most people have?
0: That it's a lot of work. It's not a lot of work. Like it's a lot of work at first, but after like the first month or two, and once it's all filled, you just kind of kick back and chill, and you just let the money kind of roll in. So I feel like that's a huge misconception.
1: Do you tend to have a lot of turnover in house hacks with? Rent by the room strategy.
0: Yeah, so that is probably one downside. You know, people who rent by the room typically don't live there for years and years and years. Right, they're living there for a year, probably at the most, maybe a few months. But again, you can you make way more rent by the room. For example, like my five bedroom house, uh, I make about thirty five hundred in rent and rent by the room. If I did it like just as a full unit, I could probably get like twenty three or twenty four hundred. So it's like a thousand dollar plus difference every month. So again, I think it's worth it.
1: I mean, when people are renting out a room, they're not wearing out the property like you would if you had a tenant in the whole property and you don't have to necessarily do that whole rehab or gut once you switch over tenants. So maybe the turnover cost probably isn't as high.
0: Yeah. I don't really like clean the property in between because like everyone else is like already there. I just kind of make sure it stays clean. It's up to them to make sure it stays clean, honestly. It's like in the lease that says, hey, you got to keep it clean. You got to be quiet and you got to be respectful.
1: What do you do for your security deposits on your house hacks? Is it similar to a traditional rental where it's one times the monthly rent?
0: That exact thing, one times rent. Uh, I always say the security deposit is what basically locks you in. Like, once I get the security deposit, the place is yours, I will take it off the market. So, usually I do the security deposit in the lease at the same time. And then I do first month's rent, just do when they move in. Because when you do rent by the room, people, you tend to attract a demographic that's like may not have three months worth of rent right away. So you kind of have to like you know accommodate for that a little bit.
1: And do you do any sort of interview or meet and greet, if you will, of, of the people that are currently living there with the prospective tenant? Or is it kind of up to your discretion?
0: It's mainly up to my discretion. If they have opinions, I definitely take them into consideration. I always let them know when the, when the showings are. They're more than welcome to come around and meet people that are coming in and out. Usually, they don't care. They don't even want to be seen. During the showings.
1: Thanks for your time, Craig. You really provided a lot of value for someone who's looking for a way to get started in real estate investing, or just for someone who's always wanted to learn more about house hacking. Where can the audience go to connect with you?
0: Yeah. So, you know, I did write the book on house hacking. You can get that at biggerpockets.com/slash househack. And if you want to follow me or reach out to me, I recommend doing so on Instagram. My Instagram handle is the Guy. So I'm at the FI, FI guy.
1: I'll be sure to put links to Craig's social media and his book in the show notes for you guys to check it out. Craig, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
0: Awesome, man. Thanks for having me
1: on the show. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week.